Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our March livestream, we'll go ahead and get started with your questions in just a moment. Just a bit of a heads up, we will go ahead and talk about the virus a little bit today but I'd really rather stick to most of the usual content and shows so try to aim your questions mostly that direction and we'll bring them through as we get going. I saw one just a moment ago as we were getting started about post-scarcity civilizations and um, GT Plus Racing had asked, I asked what tech did you think would lead to a post-scarcity society? You answered automation with the caveat of power. I can see it happening, but without major period of trouble. Thoughts? Okay, um, post-scarcity is always kind of tricky to, to discuss. We actually have that coming up in our Economies of the Future episode in uh, April to discuss that a little bit more, but we usually say they are, you can't really have the definition of scarcity of raw materials because that's a very dubious concept that you could ever have a complete lack of scarcity with those. And... Um, so we usually say it's a scarcity of anxiety uh, about you know major needs for life, and not just your basic resources like food and shelter, but uh, kind of long-term security. So the big ones we usually say are automation and power, because we've got more manpower in terms of automation, um, then you're going to do a lot better in terms of being able to produce a lot of those basic needs while giving people a lot of time to do other things, more specialized tasks or recreation or personal self-actualization, which is the top of the Maslow hierarchy for that. Um, and then of course power, the issue there is you need a cheap power source, a lot of things get a lot cheaper and easier to do if you have a vast amount of power when of course it has to be something that you can sustain indefinitely and uh, you know without major concerns about what it's going to do to the environment or other things like that. Is this a power supply that doesn't have a very negative consequence just from using and uh, is it something that was still going to be around in 10,000 years as opposed to having to hoard it? Okay, so um, would there be an adjustment period? Oh yes, yeah, that's a kind of the new technology in the cards episode that comes up uh, this upcoming week on Thursday. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but uh, basically there's going to be disruption, there's always technological disruption, there's going to be more of it. We'll be seeing quite a lot of it probably in the next year or so I should think, um, but there's going to be that as an ongoing thing. Eric Calloway asks, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being the smallest in existence and 10 being the largest, do we have any idea where humans would fit on that scale? Has a study ever attempted to find this out? I mean, it kind of depends on if you want to go linear and, and how far you're going down. You, I think the smallest distance, the plank, uh, plank length is 10 to 35 meters, don't quote me on that, it's uh, much smaller than an atom. And then if you're going to include that, then even when you get up to like the 10 to the 45th meter scale, which would be much, much bigger than uh, than the observable universe, we would then fit into the upper size category on that. On the other hand, if you're going by things like the, you know, the atomic scale, 10 to the negative 10th meters or so, 
then we would be about mid-range on the lower side of it. But basically, we fit in at the stage where uh, trillions of uh, particles interact to produce every minor effect that we have going on us, like your cells. We often say with cells, you know, you talk about molecules. And if you talk about big macromolecules, those can have a million atoms in them. But something like water that just has three atoms in it, um, you know, you think of something like that as a brick. Uh, then the typical cell in us that we're built out of, the bricks that make us up as a city, like humans, a city of made of cells. Well, a cell is basically a city made out of bricks of small atoms and buildings of small proteins, if that helps with scale at all. Um, <clears throat> Pentagram Prime asks, any thoughts on ways of speeding up drug discovery? Um, you know, I want to be kind of careful on that one because it's always very tempting when we're talking about new medications for anything um to say well once it's out we just speed it up by speeding up testing removing a lot of regulations and people tend to forget i mean for the corporation's angle they don't really like to get sued that much um but uh people tend to forget you can have people die in drug trials quite a lot and if you go ahead and do a drug trial with something before it's ready it can really have some negative consequences and you know a lot of times you're saying well if we rush this new drug out, this new drug treatment for, say, addiction or this new drug treatment for X, Y, or Z, um, many people will benefit, might save thousands, even millions of lives. It might kill that many if you mess it up. Or it might cause major, you know, like, say you have one for dealing with addiction. If it turns out that it only works temporarily, or if it causes an addiction to that substance, people don't notice, or if it causes a deficiency in something else, and you've gone ahead and deployed that to millions of people, um, because it had good or no early results without a good longitudinal study, there's a very good chance that a lot of them are going to get quite ill, sick, or dependent on something. And, um, you know, it's 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 a iffy coin flip gamp kind of situation. And those kind of side effects, they're not rare. They're, they're all, you know, almost every medication we roll out, and I'm talking about the ones we actually roll out as opposed to the ones that make it through clinical, um, tends to have some side effects that can be kind of nasty for a decent portion of the population. So drug discovery moves pretty quick there's always ways to speed it up modeling and follow better computer modeling that's going to help us out a lot but better scanning so we can see very accurately what's going on as opposed to what we essentially have to do now is talk to people and ask them how they're feeling and take a few basic readings um things change a lot when you have more accurate scanning capacity um when you get much more detail in your modeling so that would be the two that i'd say technology can most easily help speed up and then i'd say probably and we'll have this come up more in some of the uh, upcoming episodes. Neural networks, uh, while not the focus of a lot of those, are going to be very handy for a lot of that kind of thing because they're very good at decision-making and prediction. So you can give them a big wad of data and they can pick things out of it that you're not going to be able to get from a classic computer and that's just too much of a non-intuitive wad for humans to pick out on their own. Okay, Michael French asks, Isaac, I know we all worn out with COVID-19. Is the elephant in the room that must at least be mentioned? How, do, how does the futurist think we'll be proactive against this in 10 years, 100 years? Um, I suppose we'll just go ahead and say it. I think this has probably got a good chance of being our last pandemic we ever face. Um, I really don't want to focus too much on the virus. I'm not an epidemiologist, but there's a lot of little technologies that can help with breakouts uh, for things like this to really speed up your quarantine procedures or really cut down on the odds of infecting somebody else. And everything with viruses, statistics game. So if you can lower the infection rate by, you know, 15% on something like that, that has a huge impact on your ability to contain and control it. But, um, you know, let's we'll take an example here. Uh, I, we talked about a little bit in passing in the episode on new technology in the codes on, on uh, April, which is not related to the virus because it was written back in, like, December. Um, but uh, let's say everybody's got their Fitbits on and it models your health very accurately. 
um, and it can give you all the warning signs of symptoms. Not a guarantee, but all the warning signs. And it says, maybe you should go pop in and see the doctor, you know, your Fitbit on your smartphone. And you go in, you see the doctor, and the doctor says, oh, you've got X. Well, we have all your positioning data on your phone. And we have everybody else's positioning data on their phone, not everybody's, and some people might choose to opt out for privacy. Um, but now we can contact everybody you came into close contact with. And on a privacy angle, you could set that up so that, you know, the phone logs will keep track of everybody who was in that cell phone tower region at that time, nothing more. And we just send them a message saying, hey, you may have been exposed to something. Hit the, uh, you know, hit this key to send your positioning data out to compare against the person who was exposed. And it could come back and say, you've got a positive hit, go and check in the doctor. That's not going to be a 100% fix, but something like that, if you can get that rolling, and which is really not that advanced compared to what we have now. Um, you know, the ability to detect like a fever or notice a cough in someone with a piece of electronic device they're wearing like a bracelet, not that much of an advance. That positioning thing, not that much of an advance. And, you know, even if it only catches, say, 50%, although it's more likely to be much more like 90% that might catch in a case like that by positioning, that's going to have a huge impact on things like outbreaks. And then you that that's a completely different technology than going out with, my, you know, the ways we're going about preventing infections or curing them or uh, vaccinating them. And... Uh, you add all those things in together, and I think there is, I'm not going to say this is our last pandemic ever, but I think there's actually a good chance this will be it. And you'll be able to tell your grandkids, I survived the last big one. Um, and, you know, it's just a, it's a fight, it's statistics, and see how far you can get along with it. So there's a lot of reasons to be um, optimistic about the long-term future for us in terms of things like that. Uh, Mark Zimmerman asks, how would food crops be affected by lower G environments? Or... Um, for the most part, very little from what we can tell. We have very limited experimentation with that. As I like to remind people, we know almost nothing about what low gravity does to people or, or plants because what we do is we check for what it does in zero gravity. And only those few days we had even up on the moon did we actually um, know about uh, what would happen to people when they lived in low gravity. And they were only there for a few days and they were in zero gravity on either side of that. Uh, not to mention rapid acceleration, also other physical stresses. So same for the plants. I think we have tried growing a couple of them in, in centrifuges at some point too to see the effect of gravity. But for the most part, what we do is, um, you know, see how it does in low gravity. And most of them seem to do just fine. Low gravity, though, should really just have an effect of uh, probably making the, you know, they spread out a little bit differently. It would have a big effect on things like trees, but probably a much smaller effect on other things like grasses and stuff like that. Certainly more of your vine crawling plants like a strawberry, I wouldn't think they'd be too heavily impacted at all. Though there would be a lot of little impacts. A lot of plants that were normally a ground vine cover might turn into one that creeps up the sides of uh, buildings or uh, you know onto trellises. So, But I don't think they'd necessarily get any way more or less productive. That wouldn't strike me as being one of those things that would change too much. That is one of those things, though, that we are actually going to have to see. There may be some crops that explode when they're in space and, and just pour out food. There may be others, though, that just don't produce nearly as well. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Donna B. asks, do you think the timeline for widespread adoption of nanotechnology will be accelerated now? Mm, no. Um, you know, you can... Well, that's always hard to say. Anytime you have a situation where people are more actively thinking about the importance of, of a certain zone of scientific research, you start seeing a lot more folks go into it, a lot more folks dedicate their lives to it, a lot more research funding come into play, and a lot more prioritization of it. And that includes a lot of the out-of-the-box stuff. Someone comes by and says, hey, we've got something that can go into individual cells and check for X, Y, and Z. 
or you know almost any other applications of nanotechnology have pretty impressive medical applications if we get them working but so much was still in the ground-based theory state that it's just a question of all more folks are going to go into it and there's more funding going to go into it so if that were the case then yes quite probably we'd see an advancement of that um Ginga no Hashira asks, since there was a lot of discussion in the Dyson Swarm, was there ever consideration of how it affects the sun's magnetic fields and how we can change trajectory in a galaxy because of it? Um, let's see. Um, it's not really going to have a very big impact on the sun's magnetic field unless you were specifically trying to set it up that way, like if you're doing star lifting, which is a type of Dyson Swarm. It's just not the habitation type we think of. Uh, as to using it to steal the Earth's course, uh, the Sun's course around the galaxy, I mean, over the course of a billion years, yes, you could alter it pretty significantly, but you'd be better off just using, you know, reflection off the various panels and mirrors floating around that star to make it a Chicago thruster. Um, or one of the other ones we discussed in uh, Fleet of Stars that had a little bit more oomph for them. Uh, let's see. Clucky Duckery asks, regarding active support structures, if there was a power failure, would that lead to a structural collapse? Are there any possible fail-safes? Uh, it depends on which one we're talking about. Keep in mind, for the most part, with active support, what's running them isn't really power. Uh, in fact, you're hoping to make them as powerless as possible, uh, which if you have something like good superconductors, room temperature superconductors, and you have an actual magnetic shield, we don't really have very good magnetic shielding materials. New metal is about our best. But we might be able to do a lot better with certain metamaterials. If you got those two things, then you can theoretically set up a uh, an active support member to basically be zero power requirement or as close to zero as makes no difference. And if that's the case, then a power failure doesn't do anything to it. For the others, it's mostly going to start slowing down as the power drops and you know there's inertia involved in that. And I guess it would depend on what kind of magnets you're using. If you're using electromagnets and the power goes off, more of an issue. <laughs> but you'd obviously use a lot of uh, you know redundancy. We know how to set things like that up. But for instance, with an orbital ring or like a Lofstrom loop, we'll take that example specifically. The Lofstrom loop, the abridged orbital ring, when you shut the power off on that, it just slowly descends. And then even then, we have a tendency to think about things like space elevators or orbital rings crashing down to the ground. And that's actually a bit of a concern for an orbital ring just because you build those things to be really quite massive. For a space elevator, if you cut one of those, uh, the bottom end is going to fall down the earth and the other end is going to go flying off into space. So it just depends on where it gets cut. And uh, it's, you know, you talk about a while, maybe as thick as your arm, and it's not going to you know, descend at re-entry speed. It's going to descend at the speed of, you know, whatever its terminal velocity is, say 100 miles an hour. Uh, that's, I wonder why I have a house underneath it when it fell down, if we're talking about an arm-thick cable. But uh, it's going to hit at like 100 miles an hour. It's no worse than if a car crashed into that house. And it, the planet is huge and our housing takes very little of that. So even an equatorial one wouldn't really cause that much damage. Um, the orbital ring is a bit different because we tend to think about building those as, you know, the small version uh, is really just about the same width as a space elevator. But when we start talking about putting big platforms and spaceports up there, that's more of an issue, and if you're doing that, then what you're going to go ahead and do is put parachutes on the thing, so, uh, and little detonating charges, so if the power goes out, it'll begin to descend, and if it gets to the point where you need to start crunching the thing, you, you separate the sections, blow the extra orbital material out, and let the parachutes take it down to the ground, and then you make sure that nothing's actually built directly underneath these things. Um... You know, think of it as like a highway that encompasses the world with, a, say, a, a one-kilometer stretch around it. That you just don't build anything that uh, you can't easily evacuate from. Um, 
but it would take you know an open domain that's up there 80 kilometers in the air um which is about as low as you build one uh that's gonna take like an hour to fall at that speed even without the parachutes or quite quite some time to descend um let's see of course the big safety mechanism that we always have for um for power failure is the battery and of course we're looking to get much better at batteries but there's a lot of energy stored in the orbital ring it's kind of like a cylinder habitat you know you've got those spinning spinning so fast that if you need to you can just slow the spin rate down as slowly and, and just use a big dynamo to power generator for a bit um let's see the Masnado asks in your video on colonizing Alpha Centauri you said that it may not be the first place that we would want to colonize so what are the places you have in mind for interstellar colonization uh, you know, Tau Ceti, excuse me, my allergies are acting today. Um, Tau Ceti is one that comes up a lot more because it seems to have a better setup for that. Uh, Delta Epsilon, and of course, you, you'll hear a lot about, uh, you know, this is that system where we discovered a dozen exoplanets. Um, as the first place we want to colonize from an interstellar perspective, I don't know if we just do one to try it out and see what happened, or we just launch a dozen missions in different directions at the same time or close to it, but. I kind of figure Alpha Centauri would be the first one we colonize, or send a mission to at least, uh, because it is the closest, and uh, that's going to be the one you send to first as a result. But now it's Star, if we find a planet there, I can't remember if we actually have or not, that might be a good choice too. Um, but uh, it kind of depends on how quickly we roll something like that out. If you're not very confident about your, your you know fleet or ship that you send there to colonize the place, you probably just send one, maybe another group sends another one, and you see how that happens. And then, you know, a century or so later when you get back good data from them having arrived and, you know, gotten checked in, you say, okay, here's some improvements we can make. Let's go ahead and mass produce. And you send hundreds of fleets out after that. The other alternative, of course, would be that you say, well, we're pretty reliable about this on test modeling. We got plenty of volunteers. We got plenty of production. Let's just go ahead and send 100 fleets out to each of the 100 closest stars. Uh uh, last Roman, thank you very much. Hey man, your Marine buddy, Thomas Hio Semperfi. Hi Thomas. Um, uh, for anyone who was wondering, I was Army, not Marine. So I did have a chance to work with, uh, with the Marines, um, in, uh, in Ramadi for a while in, in Iraq. And they're always a great pleasure to work with. Uh, same for the Navy guys. And I did actually do an internship with the Air Force way back when I was a civilian. So, um, let's see. Booligan, thank you very much. What are your personal coronavirus preparations? Uh, well, to remind myself to stop touching my face is the big one. I'm not usually that bad about that, but my, my mustache is itching today, which is why I keep doing that. Um, let's see. <clears throat> I just keep being tempted to cut the beard off, because I used to shave it off fairly regularly, but everybody says I look better with the beard on. Um, I am already a bit of a hermit crab to begin with. Uh, I don't really go out that much, unless they need me down, like the Board of Elections for handling something, or uh, if um, you know I need to run out and go shopping or something like that. Uh, I'm also a public speaker, which means, you know, in the sense of I'm reliant on my voice. So I'm always kind of paranoid about catching the flu from people. Uh, same for Sarah, actually has to go shake people's hands a lot. Um, but uh, in my case, I don't have to do a lot of handshaking, but I do have to do a lot of public speaking. So I'm always very nervous about uh, colds and flus in the first place. You can still talk when you have a flu, but it degrades your voice a lot. So, um, I mean, the big advice I tell everyone on this one, uh, well, a, a bit of them, Wash your hands. Um, don't touch your face until you've washed your hands. Just try to get out of the habit of touching your face. Um, you know, even at home, because it's fine to do it at home, you know, but once you wash your hands off, but uh, 
it's the habit. Just try to break yourself with that habit. And if you got got an itch, you know, uh, you know, have that one arm to cough into and the other one to go with. Um, that way you're not hitting them with the same bit. But uh, I would say mostly other than that, get some exercise, eat healthy, get a lot of sleep and shut the news off. Um, you know, watch the news for like five minutes and then shut it off. And just remember, you can always catch this virus from anything. It could be touching on a door handle. It could be attached to some piece of plastic for three or four days. But you're almost certainly, if you get this, going to have got it from, you know, touching somebody and then touching your face. Or touching something everybody else does, like a doorknob, and then touching your face. You're not very likely to pick it up from almost anything else. And if, if everyone could stop magically touching their face for a month, they would probably pretty much just go away. There would be a few isolated infections here or there. Uh, mostly from somebody to their child or vice versa or to their spouse or significant other. Um, but other than that, that's the big one. You know, just try to get yourself in the habit of not touching your face and try not to, you know, just watch the 24-hour cycle. You know, stay informed, stay smart, be rational, but don't let this stuff weigh down on you all the time. And the other one is, and this is a life advice thing, always find a silver lining to everything and then kind of try to own it. You know, if, if there's something going on that's causing problems in life, Find a silver lining to it and focus entirely on, on doing that. Don't try to make it a silver lining to a, a bad thing. Try to make it an accomplishment. You know, now is a great time to be fixing the deck up in your backyard that you keep meaning to restain or to, uh, you know, seal up those holes in the in, in your drywall or, or whatever it is that you've got going on as DIY projects or spring cleaning that you keep forgetting about. Do them now, you know, and use the time to establish good health habits because, you know, that's a lot of what's going on right now is if everyone just had good health habits, and then this would pretty much die off. And this is all chance to kind of get into those. And then the silver lining for that is you might not get a flu next year. You know, there might be a, an end to a lot of things like the flu, less spread out for a while at least. So coronavirus preparations, those are about it. You know, that don't don't let it weigh down on you emotionally is the big one. Stay upbeat and find something to be upbeat about. There always is something. Um, time zone. Hey, Isaac, in your Dark Matter episode, you toured the communication... You told that communication using dark matter would be much more reliable and just better, so this means that we hear that we would not be able to hear you. Thoughts on this? Uh, in the dark matter episode, I suggest something called the dark telegraph, which would be um, uh, a very, very dense, long string of dark matter. If you could find some way to contain it, that actually produced a you know a relativistic mass slowing in the same way a black hole does. And uh, you can't really aim something through most materials that are hyperdense like that, but you can through dark matter because it doesn't interact with anything. So that's one trick that you might be able to set up if you can find a way to contain it and set up right. We just had a very dense line of material uh, that you could shoot something through as a message and be slowed down that way on the other end. That's a little dubious from a general relativity standpoint, though, and there's so much we don't know about, uh, about uh, dark matter yet that it's kind of one of those uh, interesting notions to explore down the road. Um, Dewal, thank you very much. I don't see post-scarcity coming up uh, about until after space is being colonized. I think the only new form governments will allow it. It's hard to ban something when anyone can manufacture it. Your thoughts? Um, no one's going to be able to manufacture everything. We have a tendency, uh, and see the Santa Claus machine episode for details, we have a tendency to assume that once you have a good 3D printing, it means you have a Star Trek replicator that it can make anything at all and then it's not that's not how that will happen uh there's also a time constraint on that i think we were talking about this for the antimatter episode the ability to produce at home uh and uh, and i'll save that conversation for that uh antimatter factories and their uses i believe that's a may episode might be early june we'll talk about a lot of those kind of weapons and that will apply across the board for things like producing that 
but um, as to if it can only be done when we're in space, I tend to see these things as, as tending to happen together, not because they necessarily need to, but because they're very complementary. I don't think a civilization has to go into space to become post-scarcity, but it certainly helps. And I think that if you are post-scarcity, you're going to go into space. So it's um, one of those things where I think that we will probably see post-scarcity come about about the same time. We are seeing more space development, but they are only loosely intertwined. Like, for instance, power satellites might be uh, the energy abundance that we need. And the ability to make automation much better might be the thing that lets us get into space much easier. So, <clears throat> it's kind of hard to say. Um, and uh, I don't know about, you know, where governments are concerned. Uh, I think there's a tendency to assume a lot of the governments on, on distant, isolated colonies will be a lot less... Uh, um, you know, a lot less like they are nowadays in terms of there's a very standardized structure and quite a lot of an apparatus as opposed to like the old Wild West. And we often picture those uh, colonies as the Wild West. And actually, we have an episode coming up on that in about two months. Um, what's it? Episode 242, uh, Space Police. So that would be a fun one. <laughs> so, uh, Albert Jackson uh, says, first off, congratulations on your wedding coming up in April. Thank you very much. On to the question, what's your best favorite episode you've done yet, and what episode are you most excited about doing in the future? You know, I don't really have favorites the same way. Um, there's you know, favorites that are my favorites just because it let me talk about a topic I was particularly fond of, uh, and favorites that uh, are all my favorites because they did very well with the audience, and, uh, you know, favorites where it just seemed like it came together really well. Um, I would say... Uh, Black Hole Farming, our original Civilization at the End of Time episode, is always going to be one of my personal favorites because, um, you know, that not only did that episode do very well, but it was kind of a surprise that it did. I'd done that episode to kind of finish up some thoughts I'd been discussing a few episodes before that, and I thought it would have a very low um, engagement time and that very few people would be interested in it because, uh, you know, you had to watch like four or five episodes for it to really make sense. Um, and yet it is uh, one of our three or four most popular episodes. For a long time, it was number one. And I think the, the number one titles are, uh, they've got about a million views each, are uh, Alpha Centauri and the sequel to uh, Black Hole Farming, Iron Stars, I think are the number one and number two, but I'd have to double check that. It changes a little bit with time. Um, so I'd say that's probably my favorite episode, just because it was the one we got to really do uh, a lot of out-of-the-box thinking on. Of course, you know, it's very theoretical stuff, but it's that kind of bigger topics that we like to do. Um and, uh, you know, there's a lot of those episodes. If I start thinking about them, I'll get distracted, though. But, uh, you know, it's usually if it was one of the ones we really got to be out of the box, where it was one of those ones we used to refer to as a classic SFIA, that would be one of the ones. Um, take one more, two more before we go to the break. <clears throat> Rojas uh, asks, will manly beards be the norm in the future now that you've set the trend? Yeah, I noticed that uh, there are actually a lot more beards, uh, and I work with a lot of public officials and elected officials, and, and for a long time, you just never see anybody running for office who had a beard. It was a very real thing. I noticed we have a lot more of them in Ohio of late, Northeast Ohio. Uh, quite a few of my friends who are in the local county uh, government or commissioner and uh, auto, for instance, both have beards now, and it suits them very well. So I'm glad to see beards making their way back. Um, to me, the beard's kind of actually a neutral thing. I used to grow a beard for a while, a goatee, and then shave it down to a goatee, and then shave it off about once a month, and go bear cheat for a while. And uh, I've just had this one going on for a few months now, and it's uh, everyone seems to think it looks better on me, so it's there. I'd be fine shaving it off the very next day. It's actually, for those of you who do not grow beards, it is actually more of a pain in the butt to maintain a beard halfway decently than it is to actually shave uh, every day. So, um... 
take that as a grain of salt if you're planning to start growing one. But uh, let's see. There's actually a funny story on this. Is uh, a couple years back, I started losing weight, and I started just you know shave off all the beers and things like that. Uh, you know, because you tend to sweat a lot when you're doing exercise. And so for almost a year, I didn't have a beard on, and uh, I grew one out to uh, fit the costume I was wearing when I was going up with my friend Bill and uh, Eric to um, to uh, spend the sorry Eric didn't make that trip to spend a weekend near Rochester for their medieval fair. And Bill's a historian and uh, very into, um, uh, what's it called, HEMA, uh, Historic European Martial Arts. So he had us all dressed up in costume, and I was uh, doing a Rus Viking costume, so I had to grow a beard. And I hadn't worn one in quite a while, so I got back, looked in the mirror, and tried to say, I want to shave it off, and I saw some gray hair in it. And I was like, oh no, gray hair. And I said, well, if I shave it off, I'm being vain. So I ended up wearing it again for a while, <laughs> and that seems to have evolved into the corn beard. All right. Take one more real quick before we go to break. Uh, my zombie look asks, what security precautions do you consider essential pertaining to, pertaining to brain-to-computer interfaces and similar technology once they are advanced enough to imprint memories to our brains, i.e. learning? Without knowing the specifics of how the hardware works on, on something like that, it would be really hard to give you a security precaution, but I would say you wouldn't want anything like that to be... You, you probably... I think what you have is trusted companies, verified companies, kind of thing like we do with software patches nowadays, and really high transparency on those. So I think the one big one with that would be you probably have to do some limitations on intellectual property rights or adjustments to patents on those fields so that companies that were doing those felt safe letting their software be seen um, so that it could be transparent to people looking at it, but without them worried their, their IP is going to get stolen. Um, if you've got multiple third groups that can, you know, third parties can look and verify that a given update is going to be fine, um, then you can go ahead and patch that through to people without them having to know the code themselves to, to audit it. And if you're trying to learn, you know, say you download the program from some random third party about how, you know, third party app on how to do Kung Fu and find out that it's giving you some really real trend, like an intense urge to buy a specific dessert from X company, you know, that's... The kind of thing we'd be looking to want to avoid, and obviously that could be much worse, like the intense source to vote for X, Y, or Z. Alright, we're going to go ahead and go to break. Uh, I'll talk to you all in a few minutes. So while we're on break and folks are grabbing drinks and snacks, I thought we'd do some show announcements. First, it's hard to ignore the big global pandemic going on, but for those who saw my Facebook announcement on the matter a couple weeks back, I do believe it's important for folks to have some place to get a breather from the 24-7 news cycle. And as SFIA is already a place where we tend to be nowhere near modern times and places, I figured I should keep the channel free as a place to escape to. So we'll address it a bit today in the live stream, and it gets a quick mention in this upcoming Thursday's episode, but otherwise we're basically asking everyone to avoid discussing it any more than necessary on the show and our social media. I rarely offer life advice, but while it's important to keep updated, follow health guidelines and get plenty of sleep and exercise, it's also important during crisis to find some mental space to be free of it, and SFIA is already a good fit for that so we won't be discussing it much here, and my life advice would be to check the news once or twice a day for a few minutes, then shut it off and avoid talking with folks about it unless it's specifically pertinent. Since by sheer coincidence our April 2nd episode, New Technologies That May Be In The Cards, actually does discuss a bunch of things relevant to the matter, I did an addendum onto that episode briefly discussing it, but it is a sheer coincidence since episodes get written and recorded months in advance here. 
This is the reason I can say that we will still be having weekly episodes even in late April and early May when I'm getting married. They're all done and they just need to be released which doesn't take much time, and Sarah and I are both public officials so still have to check in a little bit with life in case of emergencies, which we're obviously in so we can't go 100% off the grid anyway, but we're aiming for 99%, and I'll just take a few minutes on Thursday mornings to release those episodes. That's the other thing keeping me a bit preoccupied of late. I am a public official and serve on the Board of Elections here in Ohio and we had to postpone that election and reconfigure around that crisis, so it's been a bit of a wild ride and I just want to give a big attaboy to my staff there for the amazing job they've done under hectic times, as well as all the poor workers who were ready to show up and work in spite of the danger. And I'll confess it was a weight off my chest when we could postpone it and tell all those hundreds of folks to stay home, especially as most of those folks are senior citizens. One sad note, I recently had the honor to get the Pioneer Award from the National Space Society. They don't hand out many of those and the previous recipients are folks like John Glenn and Elon Musk, and the governing board includes folks like Buzz Aldrin and Freeman Dyson, who we sadly did a tribute video on recently when he passed away, so it was a very big and also personal honor as so many of the governors and recipients are my heroes and the NSS has been a source of information and inspiration to me for most of my life. I was going to be down in Dallas for their May conference to give a talk on space colonization and receive that award, but it had to be cancelled for safety reasons, nonetheless I still count it a great honor and will do something with them at some point I'm sure. Another thing that got delayed was the unveiling of our new studio for SFIA, which was supposed to be done a while ago but kept hitting delays even before the crisis. But it's almost done and we're not doing a live stream in April so I'm confident this will be our last live stream from the old studio, and hopefully with the new one we'll be able to start experimenting with some fun new stuff for the show. One thing I'm absolutely not postponing or delaying is my wedding, even if the sky falls in or we have to do it by video, and thanks again to everyone for all the well wishes and for those who've been asking I will go ahead and post a link to our wedding registry in today's live stream with the request that if you do get us a gift, please make sure it has a note with an address so we can send you a thank you card. Alright, with all that said, let's get back to your questions. Okay, and we're back. Uh, The K2 Despot asks, will you ever do a video about smart matter technology? I thought actually we had, I can't remember which one it is. Um, If not, I will get around to doing one. What are the different possible methods for making it a reality? What could we do with it and what couldn't we do with it? Um, I wish I could remember what episode that was we covered him. Uh, I know I ended up talking about the uh, T-5000 or 3000 rather from uh, the Terminator Genesis movie as an example, though that's about the only thing I can recall about that episode. If anyone does remember what that episode was, please post in the comments. <laughs> um, but with Smart Matter, you know, don't assume that you'd be able to do the equivalent of a Star Trek replicator with it. But you would have something that might be, say, a lot of, like, the equivalent of a cell, uh, a human cell made out of something that was mechanical, maybe a bit smaller, maybe a bit larger, and that we were able to bind to each other to form shapes. And so you'd probably be able to make anything that was actually fairly complicated by just assembling those into bits and pieces, but there would be limitations on that. And it wouldn't be, you just wouldn't have, like, one type of cell, same as a human, you'd have specialized ones, ones that were meant for being electronic circuits, ones that were meant for being, you know, hard shielding on the outside of something, and so on. Um... And it's possible something like that could, for instance, you know, condense your glass of water and, and form into a glass of water around it, the actual glass, but uh, you know, it's not going to magically pour an apple out of the air for you either, I don't think. That's 
probably not in the cards, but the ability to produce something like an apple by uh, by rapidly growing it or by printing it uh, over the course of you know several minutes, that might be in the cards. Uh, Brian Moore says, you look good with that full beard. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Gingo no Hashiro asks, is a collective conscience possible without losing one's individuality? Yes, we have one now. Um, as we discussed in Hive Minds, we already are a networked intelligence. Um, whenever you start seeing a specialized society, even something like a pack or a horde, it's there. How tangible it is, a little bit debatable, right? There's a line between, you know, what we have in terms of a networked intelligence now and something a little bit more, you know, psychic, mystical, where it's actually got a thinking brain of its own. Well, things like that are obviously in the cards, too, from a technological angle. But you don't necessarily have to have that full-blown consciousness to have something that's equivalent to a networked idea. You know, groups groups act with a personality, as it were. Uh, and I don't just mean, like, mob behavior. You know, like a group like your local village, your this or that company, this or that, uh, you know, gaming group or whatever it is. There is some element of that there, and we don't really understand consciousness enough to say where that the thin or thick line would be between those two. But uh, so I have to assume there would be a way to do that, since we already to some degree have a limited form of that in play. <clears throat> Dencho Stoyanov uh, says, "Greetings from Bulgaria. What's your favorite alien race from any media, in terms of being truly alien and not just repainted humans?" Oh, hmm. You know, it, my brain immediately turns to a lot of Star Trek examples. Um. But uh, I told Star Trek's not a very good source for those. Um, probably the most alien aliens they had were the Borg, uh, earlier versions of the Borg. They got a little bit watered down after a while. Um, not going to take a pot shot at Star Trek Voyager uh, because it's too easy, but uh, that would be an example. Uh, we see a little bit in DS9 with like the wormhole aliens too, but a lot of times it was like Star Trek or Star Wars. It's just, you know, repainted faces. Um Maybe the Descalada virus or the piggies from uh, Orson Scott Card's Endor series. Um, uh, huh. If I had more time to think on it, I'm sure I would be able to come up with some examples. But uh, it's tricky because, you know, your most alien intelligences would probably be something like an AI. Um, you know, an alien AI is, is likely to differ from, or even an AI we make, is likely to differ from us a lot more than something else that's also had a clot way up uh, Darwin's ladder. Um, let's see. Al Huseo asks, so thank you very much. Uh, do you think we'll be able to reverse aging by 2050? I won't rule it out, but I wouldn't, you know, 30 years is a long time to make improvements. Um, and, uh, it could turn out to be a very simple problem, but it's possible. I don't think we get there that fast. Uh, slowing aging down. Absolutely. We already do that. If you look at people who are in their 70s or 80s nowadays, they are in much better health than people were in their 50s or 60s. And I say, oh, well, that's just minor improvements here and there. It's not really slowing the aging process. Well, the aging process is not some magic clock. It is that, you know, it's a combination of DNA wearing down, uh, certain cells placking up uh, in terms of, uh, you know, they die off, they mutate, they build plaques and garbage up in the body. And, uh, you know, things just wearing down in general, though. It's, it, don't think of aging as really wearing down like a car. And everything we do that slows that down a little bit is genuine anti-aging medicine. You know, it's, it's, that's all medicine is life extension and almost all of them have an anti-aging aspect to them. So will we slow aging by 2050? Absolutely. We already have. Uh, will we, uh, will we stop being able to reverse aging effects? Maybe a few of them. I mean, so it's, it's not going to be one single effect. They'll have like, you know, at least six that we know of, but probably dozens. And we might learn how to turn one of them back or slow one of them down very significantly compared to the others. 
and um, you know, it's it might be that the way people look age-wise is going to start varying a lot because we might master whatever causes skin to look old or you know, uh, you know, uh, lost a certain structures that make you kind of sag down in terms of skin. Um, that might be something we master very early on, for instance, and so everybody looks like they are, you know, 30 until they flop over dead, uh, even though they'd still do it like 80 or 90. But um, there's a lot of uncertainties, and I don't think we're going to solve those enough to be able to say we've reversed aging in the next uh, 30 years. Um, <clears throat> Luis Gomez asks, are handheld laser weapons possible? Yes. Uh, laser pointers, uh, laser weapons, often to remind guys in my unit. We had a lot of... Um, laser instrumentation that came to us when we first deployed to Iraq and um, the uh, laser pointer seemed to be a very popular one not to be confused with like the laser dot size you see on weapons like the CCO optic that is a holographic site it does not project a dot onto people but uh, a lot of those lasers uh, e even ignoring that they have you know, military applications and therefore be considered a weapon if you shine a class 4 laser on people's eyes that's going to hurt them really bad so those are handheld as the classic laser rifle that blows holes through people, never. Um, and, well, I will never always like to say avoid the word never. Um, energy does, you know, you can take the same amount of energy from a, from a laser rifle pulse if you have a battery that's going to release that fast and give it into a, a solid mass projection of a slug and it's going to do more damage. It's um, very nice, a fast weapon, but, and it's not really your ideal man portable small arm. Um, let's see. Thank you, Adam Nichols. Nicholas. Excuse me. In regard to climate change, how do you see international co-op needed to build huge megastructures? Um, objectively, it will be beneficial to them, but so is resolving climate change. That doesn't seem to be working. I tend to disagree with the last assertion there. We do see a lot of folks working a lot towards uh, international and local. You know, there's a lot of scientific and technological research on that matter that gets shared around. And we don't, you know, it, maybe it's not as fast or as much as we'd like in the right areas, but don't underplay the development that we have had so far, which is pretty impressive. Um, as to cooperation to build huge megastructures, I don't think so. I don't think you'd actually build any of these things if they required total global, you know, unification on something like that. I mean, we, a skyscraper doesn't require global unification. Uh, it doesn't require national yeah, unification. Um, and you'd have to ask why would people build some of these things if it required all of that effort when you could build smaller ones. So I think if you build something like a full-blown oil cylinder, it will be because your industrial output would allow you to build many thousands of such things if you really want to. And so you see like an individual nation builds one. But until then, uh, I think, or individual corporation, uh, until then I think what you'd see would be much smaller stations. And you'd have cooperation on those, but that would be hit and miss and, and as needed and as interest took people in that direction. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Mo Johnson. Thoughts on plant hybrid biologies, i.e. sapient alien that does photosynthesis to eat less, recycles own CO2, etc., i.e. algae tattoos for humans. Um, could we, uh, for the algae tattoos reference, uh, it's been suggested you could build in um, photosynthetic algae tattoos, essentially, onto people that would serve as a solar panel, an organic solar panel for uh, instrumentation or, or you know, uh, personal augmentation. Um, usually speaking... Uh, photosynthesis and mobility are not going to go too well together. Uh, it depends on the power storage they had, but uh, I think you could see that, or maybe something photoelectric. We were going to talk about that in the non-carbon-based aliens episode in mid-April, though, so I will pass on that mostly there because we do actually talk about that option a bit. But uh, it would depend a lot on the local environment. If it was a very alien one compared to Earth's, um, you might see 
you might see that they really didn't need as much power to move around, right? Um, like as we were discussing the low uh, low gravity plants one, there might be cases where something like that might be more effective. Um, thank you, Hawaiian Bayer. Aloha, congratulations, Mini Whiskers Laddie. Say <laughs> so apparently everyone does agree that beer looks better. So, uh, Boo Boo Master says, "What is your view on bioethics? You talked about multiple transhuman problematics, but I was never figured out what was your opinion on those matters in an ethical way aside from the science." Good. Um, a well, let's say. I am a huge fan of Sagan and I and, and many other folks who have, you know, popularized science down the years, but I have noticed that in any, almost any field of expertise, it's not just limited to sciences, a lot of times when they're done explained to you, and I'm not trying to call anyone out individually on this because it's something we're all guilty of, myself included, but um, uh, everyone's got a right to an opinion, but often when they be done explaining how the science worked uh, or what you could do with it, they tell you what they think you should do with it. Uh, or what they think the answer is from an ethical or philosophical perspective. We have folks who do that for a living too. You know, the rest of us do science, and uh, we'll let the guys in the ethics department kind of handle that a bit more. Um, if you go through a sequence of episodes and you don't know my opinion on something, um, good. You know, that that's probably the way it should be. Um, I mean, it's probably not too surprising, though obviously I tend to feel where a lot of the bioethics concerned is, the big one is be thinking about it, talking about it, and then the big one is always look for something very similar that we've already dealt with. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the right answer, but it is, you know, the, the basis for that. So like, for instance, um, if we started using simulations of animal minds to run things like a robotic lawnmower, you know, so your, your local lawnmower that you have running around in the field is an AI, your landkeeper is an AI, and it's got the brain of a sheep, uh, presumably a digital one rather than, than what we hooked up there. Whether or not that's ethical is a very valid question uh, if it's something fair or right to do that sheep, but at the same time, um, or that that uh, AI sheep, you'd have to ask, is it any different than the more circumstances we already have, where of course we harvest them for foreign meat already, uh, which isn't to say that's necessarily right or wrong, uh, but it's, it's that it's not a new issue. Same for a lot of things like genetic tweaking of people, that's um, a new specific technology, but if you say, well, people might be trying to advantage their kids by giving them a genetic tweak to make them smarter or more handsome or more athletic. And you say, well, that's a fair point. Uh, at the same time, though, people already do that. People, you know, self-select mates based on what would tend to make healthier kids at a subconscious level, they think. Uh, certainly every parent tries to give their kid the best opportunities they can give them. So whether or not that's a morally correct thing to do it's not really a completely new issue when you get into something like genetic engineering, cloning, things like that. So uh, that's kind of the one for me on bioethics is uh, take your time, think it out, think it through properly in the public forum, and, and try to see what you've already figured out your society that's very close to that. And it might be that you'll say, well, this is so close to this other thing, it's fine. Or you might toward the other way around and say, well, this thing we've always been doing, now that we've thought about it twice uh, in this new context, maybe we should stop doing that too. But... Um, you know, ultimately, when it comes to what the right or wrong answer is on things like that, you know, I, I like to think my audience is pretty smart. And even if that wasn't the case, you know, you make up your minds on things like that. And if you get an impression of what my own opinions on these things are, it might have slipped through, or maybe you're just assuming I would tend to agree with you on things or whichever the case is. But the ideal is that you should come away from the episode on these ethical questions, just not knowing what my view is. Um, 
And a lot of times I actually don't have one. <laughs> Zamthor from uh, Norwegian, uh, Norway, uh, thank you very much, says, don't touch your face. And yes, fortunately I am at home right now and I am a bit of a uh, obsessive compulsive hand washer, so it's probably not an issue. But uh, again, like I was telling people, try to get out of that habit even when you are at home because uh, it makes it so much easier to not do it when you're not at home. So um, let's see. Uh, Alex Harper says, do you think COVID-19 will start a trend towards a global government? Uh, I mean, I can only kind of guess at the moment based on how folks are reacting to it that it almost tend to do the exact opposite as a lot of folks are doing quarantines and, and not best pleased with their neighbors' quarantines. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I uh, would put that one more into the political category where I really wouldn't want to touch that too much. One always hopes a crisis is going to bring folks close together. And we always are aiming to be close together in terms of friendship. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to want to have a unified government or anything like that, too. Uh, and I'm, I, you know, would leave it pretty much at that. Uh, I personally, you know, again, I work in local government, so I tend to, like all my friends who are in local government, we always feel like the state is, is trying to overly control what we're doing locally so we can't innovate. And the states say the same thing about the federal government while doing the same to the local governments that the federal does them and so forth. And there's always those arguments. And it's, it's the same one we get in software. Are you building a horizontal platform or a vertical platform? Sometimes standardization helps, sometimes it does not. And um, those of us who tend to work on the local selected end where we like to be able to actually you know innovate a bit, uh, almost always tend to at least subconsciously be a bit opposed to more unification of things like that, while recognizing there's often a lot of benefits too. So it's case-by-case -case basis on a lot of those things. Um, Glenn R. Frank asks, have you had any sci-fi books that you knew were directly influenced by any of your videos? Yes. <laughs> um, uh, actually, one of them gets mentioned in the last episode I wrote, uh, which will come out in like June. Um, there are a few uh, Brian Clark's uh, novel, which, oh my... Um, I can't remember the full name of it. It's probably seen on the shelf behind me. The Man in the Hall, I think. Brian Clark, uh, Dennis e. Taylor, a friend of mine. I think I've influenced his more recent work because I was in, uh, helped edit the book. Uh, so probably yes. <laughs> uh, that, by the way, that's the upcoming. For those of you who are Bob Bobo's fans, uh, the fourth book, uh, The Search for Bendor, is kind of come out sometime in the summer, is best guess. So, um, and that uh, I, I I personally enjoyed it quite a lot. So Dennis is a great writer. Uh, let's see. But as to a lot of them, there's a lot of books. I've, I've got somewhere around here various copies of books that have been sent to me by this or that person uh, who's written ones that was kind of inspired by it. And uh, you know, I, I it's always a nice feeling to know that your works actually having an influence on folks. But um, be that as it may, uh, not that many because I tend to be more into classic sci-fi. Um, let's see. <clears throat> Marco Sun Sonic Marco Sonic Racer. I'm sure I've commented before on the interesting names that everyone tends to have on YouTube here. Um, question: On what time frame you think that humans would be able to completely change their bodies, like changing DNA to make it whatever they want with their bodies? One thousand years, one hundred, more or less. Um, which episode was it we were discussing that in recently? Uh, <laughs> It, it seems like a lot of the questions always seem to be episodes that we have coming up very soon, and maybe that's because they're most on my mind, or maybe they're triggering other people's minds from the same material that's making me think I need to write an episode on it. Um, to completely change the DNA in your body, that is something we could potentially be doing, and it depends on how much you mean completely change, like change yourself into an oak tree, probably a while, because uh, you got a lot more things to work out there, but... 
to completely change the DNA of a human person's body, I'd say probably a century. Probably a century. Um, and again, that's inside a human template. If you're trying to innovate with completely new life in terms of like way outside the human template, maybe longer. Uh, especially when you have to consider that there'd probably be a lot of restrictions on slowly researching, developing, and studying that to make sure we didn't actually start producing, you know, um, Khan Union Singh or uh, you know, horrible mutant zombies or whatever the case might be. Thank you, Robert Flores. Um, I feel sled-launched rockets from equatorial areas on mountains are not considered by modern space programs. Being able to give a rocket a pre-ignition speed of 3,000 miles now saves a lot of fuel mass. It does. Um, it's not a linear thing because, again, the, the going up to that rest of that speed is going to cost a lot more fuel. Um, but being able to launch from a mountain uh, like down in Ecuador, there's some that are of interest to us for that. Very advantageous. But it's kind of like the orbital ring is that unless you're doing a lot of launches, you know, our fuel costs are not a big problem with these right now. Unless you're doing a lot of launches, it's a question of whether or not you really want to go to all the effort to build that infrastructure. And it's a lot of infrastructure to do something like that. Um, and not just the ramp going up the side thing. You've got, you have to move a lot of your exports down there, got to set up all the actual equipment down there and all those other wonderful things. And then you have to actually have a location nearby where those folks can come live, want to live, and uh, have all the various services for their families with them. So be a bit of a time, you know, uh, but uh, I think that we will start seeing people take advantage of that um, as we see a bigger output in terms of how often we're launching. Uh, Oleg Putz asks, do you think bioinformatics will get big these days in the immediate future? <laughs> um Bioinformatics, yes. Um, you know, that's one of those terms where I've heard it kicked around, so I'm never sure what its exact definition is, and I think it overlaps with a lot of the other ones. Information technology involving biological things might be one way to look at that. I'm not really positive what the current definition would be if that's just like studying people's longitudinal data, individual stuff about microbiology, or more the uh, local culture and its, its net health as well. Um, but yeah. Yeah, pretty much everything involving biology and medicine is probably going to get a little bit of extra boost in, in the coming years. Um, Armando Diaz asks, Star Trek Picard, like it or hate it? Um, I'd love to see Patrick Stewart back again, but the simple answer is I have not watched any of it yet. Uh, when new science fiction shows come out, I always, I mean, sometimes I watch the pilot, but in general, I wait till the whole season's done, and then I binge watch that thing. So, not there yet. I still haven't actually finished the whole season one of, of Star Trek Discovery, which... I, uh, I'm kind of waiting to see if people say it gets better or not in future seasons before I, I lock into that. So, um, but Star Trek Picard, uh, Patrick Stewart and, you know, I mean, Brent Spinal, those are, you know, always the folks we love seeing from, uh, Star Trek Next Generation, Jonathan Frakes, um, Laval Bowen, all those wonderful actors, but, uh, I'm not sure if Laval Bowen's in the new one. I, I remember seeing that Brent Spinal was though, but whichever the case happens to be, I will give you an opinion on that when I get around to watching it, which will be after the season's complete. Um, <clears throat> the Masonator, what propulsion systems do you think will be used for early exploration beyond the asteroid belt? Always fusion would be a nice one, of course, but I would tend to think your, your outside the asteroid belt one would probably be laser propulsion and then something to slow down on the other end. Uh, maybe something to go out there and build like a meal system, the other things of, ob of interest. Um, we will talk about that a bit more in the, um, uh, somewhere on Jupiter episode, which is coming up in uh, May. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, we did talk about that a little bit in colonizing Pluto and I think colonizing Neptune too, that you get these arrays of, of things set up around the bigger objects that you can use to kind of light push things around. Um, 
And so they're very good for speeding up there and they're very good for slowing them down if you happen to have those uh, at the end point. So you just have to build the first time out uh, near the object of interest. Then it just depends on what your other propulsion systems are for when you offer that. All right, uh, we got time for a few more questions. Um, John Miller asks, how realistic is non-carbon-based life? Seems numerically, probabilistically improbable. Impossible, excuse me. Probably. Uh, no, that is an episode we have coming up in mid-April. I want to say the 26th, no, no, 23rd or the 16th, the 16th. Um, I would say that it is not terribly likely, though it's so hard for us to actually say this time, and we're going to explore the options for it. And one has to remember, it all comes down to a quantity thing. Let's say that that uh, only one out of a billion worlds develops life that's not carbon-based, um, as opposed to a billion worlds develop life that's carbon-based, and say one um, a million develop carbon-based life. So one uh, quadrillion develop um, you know, non-carbon-based life. Well, the universe got a lot more than quadrillion stars in it, so you might see it happen. And of course, we don't know what those odds are. There's no reason to assume we one in quadrillion might be one in a 10 to the negative 54th or something worse than that. Okay. But we'll look at that in that episode. Thank you, Adam Nicholas. Hey, Isaac, is there a reason that powerful repelling magnets aren't often mentioned as a launch option? Uh, also, do you plan to do an episode on techniques for sea studying artificial islands? Uh, well, we did do an episode on uh, seasteading and artificial islands. I don't know if you mean a follow-up to that, but maybe. Uh, it did seem like there was a lot more to discuss on that topic. Uh, I usually like to wait a year or two for following up on an episode, though, um, unless it's you know, just calls to be written at that moment. As to magnets for launching, um, you know, magnetic proportion like the railgun system, I, we looked at that in mass drivers. I really do think that is a very good option, but... Uh, it's harder to use in an atmosphere, so it's always struck me as something you'd be more likely to use on, um, you know, atmosphereless moons and uh, asteroids, or actually up in orbit. It would be nice to develop it as a platform to launch from Earth, but uh, it, you know, at that point you're talking about almost the same level of effort as involved in the active support systems like the Lostrum Loop or the Orbital Ring, and uh, those are obviously magnetic too, but they're not magnetically propelling the vessel so much as they are magnetically propelling the stuff that's keeping the thing held up. Though you can use it to propel the vessel, the Lostrum loop actually use it for both. Uh, <clears throat> uh, thank you, Chris Sisk. Um, and Andrew Hickman asked, do androids, <laughs> do androids dream of electric lawnmowers? Uh, if you're missing that reference, that would be the Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, which was the basis for the Blade Runner franchise. Um, which is wonderful. Um, and uh, we'll do a last question. For we, well, we've got time for a couple more. Um, I would say, hmm, do androids dream of electric lawnmowers? I think we actually didn't talk about lawnmowers in the episode this Thursday, too. <laughs> so, um, let's see. It would be interesting to know if you actually need a dream cycle on all these things, too. And you say, well, you don't have to have a, a dream cycle, uh, you know, a sleep cycle on an artificial intelligence. But if you're modeling them much around a human brain, and that would probably be the easiest, safest way to start off with is to model them on existing human or mammal brains and then just tweak them as, as you, you know, get them running, um, then they presumably still do need that sleep cycle. Um, and then there's always the question of if you can find some way around that, can you apply that to normal people? And you say, well, you know, uh, if you could eliminate the need for sleep, you have basically 50% more time each day. At least I hope so. A lot of people do not let themselves get a full night's sleep, and I didn't used to, but uh, there, would, there would be another bit of life advice. Always get a full night's sleep. <laughs> so, 
Um, but uh, I don't know. It might be interesting to see what kind of dreams an artificial intelligence would actually have if they were built enough around a human template. And it might turn out that with really complicated uh, systems like neural networks that you might actually need to start building things like that into them. We just don't know enough about why we actually sleep. And it's probably not a single reason, but it has to have some kind of advantage because you're pretty vulnerable while you're sleeping one third of a time. Very vulnerable. And if it wasn't a pretty necessary thing, you would expect that, that would already have disappeared out of out of um, you know the the natural selection uh, issues. Okay. Uh, so we'll take one last question. Mauzal asks, "What are your thoughts on Neuralink?" We discussed that quite a lot in the mind augmentation video, um, and the um, I know there's another episode besides mind augmentation we looked at in mind machine interfaces. That was the recent episode on that, uh, and I believe that was mid summer of last year. Um, mind machine interfaces. I think we're going to see a lot more of those in terms of very simple things. It's not going to be as, as complicated as folks tend to think. We just plug in. Now you're hooked up to the internet. I think what you tend to see is a lot more small things. Like here's the mind machine interface that uh, is just one tiny little chip in there that helps to monitor the uh, you know the blood sugar levels in your brain, for instance, or uh, is keeping track of you know how much um, you know where your position's at to kind of bringing other data or is telling you what your position is or, you know, is involved in a heads up display on your eyeball. I think you see a lot of tiny little things as opposed to the, as we say, the unified smartphone or PC approach where it's all on one thing that might come later on. But I think you'd have to start a lot smaller and, and single focus. Uh, as to Neuralink itself, I think it's a great, I think they're doing wonderful research on it, but until they actually have a specific product that's ready for real testing on people, I, I, I tend to just kind of take it as nice new theoretical research. Um, all right, so I guess let me take one last one. If I can get to one last one, let's see. I think somebody had asked there whether or not we'd expect the internet to be going down anytime soon. I would say that the internet is probably the last thing that we're likely to see dropping anytime in the near future with this crisis. <laughs> so, all right, um, because again, it's so handy for people to stick on to and uh, you know if everyone's kind of forced to stay at home for their recreation and again you, you you most of us are already pretty used to spending a lot of time online and in fact we've usually been telling people to not do that so much because it's not so terribly healthy in many ways too so but um, I think it would be interesting to see what the changeover rates in terms of a lot of the classic recreation versus more online stuff is going to be after, you know, we've obviously seen quite a bump in it, but see what the change of that's going to be over the course of this year when we actually have some good data on that and see what it indicates. But uh, always new problems, new advantages, new solutions, and so forth. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and close out there for the day, and just uh, we'll see you all on Thursday for the episode. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay upbeat. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.